Today's guest is Bronwyn Ward. And Bronwyn, I mean, when I heard what she was doing in the world, I was like, oh my God, this is the perfect fit for this show. And I, and if not, maybe a little depressing. So Bronwyn Ward has worked in palliative care as an artist helping to tell people's stories. And I found this conversation really fascinating and eye-opening because death is something as a society we do our very best to avoid talking about, even though it's completely 100% unavoidable. And when I, when I was thinking about what I wanted the intention for this conversation to be, I wanted it to be deep and dark and have those elements, but also an element of light and fun. So the first part of this podcast is really talking about uh, the, the death and dying aspect and how art can be such a therapeutic tool for families and people who are dying to, you know, use to connect to their story, use to connect to their feelings and use as a communication tool a precious communication tool. And then the last part of this conversation is about the creativity side, fun, giving yourself permission to be an artist, you know, just having some fun with it. So it is a little dark and a lot of light and a lot of fun. Let me introduce you to Bronwyn Ward. Creativity, self-expression and feelings. Creativity. Self-expression and feeling. Make some noise. 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 Not only a podcast. Okay, yet to it. Hi, my name's Bronwyn Ward. I'm an artist and an arts and health project practitioner. Um, so I work in the community. I have a real passion in using art to help people explore the kind of the realities around death and dying and how to make those um, experiences better and just to talk about it more. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, what an area of life we just want to close the door on and mm -hmm. never speak about, right? <laughs> Classic <laughs> <Exactly>. avoidance. <laughs> exactly. I know when people talk about, oh, you've worked in palliative care, that must be awful. It's, so like, it's actually a really nice <laughs> Nice place to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is like it's the one thing that none of us can avoid, yet we spend our entire lives doing our best to avoid it. So what a gift to share with the world to be able to open up conversations about this in a, a safe and healthy environment. So what led you to this work? Uh, so I, I lived in the UK for 13 years and most of that time I was working as a complementary therapist in a hospice. Uh, so I was a clinical aromatherapist. I was working with patients who were actively dying. I was working with well patients who were managing their symptoms. And um, one of the most important roles was carrying a carer across the border and into being bereaved. So very front-end, very highly emotional kind of work that I was doing, very, very, very difficult, challenging kind of work, but I became very good. I did a lot of training in, you know, communication and became very good at communicating with people around this, this subject and, um, you know, just sort of helping them through, 
through that time and the so way that I I've just got a random question yeah, for you yeah. sorry sometimes I'll interrupt with random questions yeah, um, but something has me really intrigued here because it is such a such an interesting field to choose and so was there loss or something in your life that led you to choose that direction or did you just kind of fall find yourself falling into it um, there wasn't a particular loss for me, actually. I just was interested. I've always had a kind of a draw. I've always quite liked hospitals and stuff in a weird way. I'd started, I was working in admin. I was working for a team of community nurses um, who were working in the community with children who had life-limiting illnesses. And I just felt like I could do more. And so that's why I went back to school and I retrained as a therapist to work in, you know, specifically because I wanted to help work in, in palliative care. I've just sort of had a real, just a general interest in, in that space. And I really loved it. A hospice is actually a really beautiful place to because the people who work in that space are most of the time very good at looking out for each other. So as far as, uh, you know, sort of colleagues and people that you work with, you tend to be surrounded by people who are pretty good at, you know, kind of supporting each other. Compassionate yeah, so and empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. But it all does take a big toll on everyone. I, I worked for a while and I was working on a project in Sydney and the director of the palliative unit there said described her staff as traumatized which I thought was incredibly insightful because it is true it is traumatic to relentlessly watch and witness people dying um, so for me my self-care was to really get involved with you know my artistic practice you know so uh, when I was in the UK I had a studio, um, a really, it was part of a really amazing studio in Bristol called Spike Island and I was doing printmaking there and it, you know, as it sort of started as my way of kind of just, um, you know, getting back into art because I hadn't done any for a while since I since art school. But it, very, it sort of developed that um, actually the two things have just kind of become very meshed. My kind of passion about improving death literacy and improving the dying process for people and my art has kind of just slowly over the many many years it's kind of come together to sort of where I am at the moment. Yeah because I guess we're not really you know I mean in other parts of the world they have a healthier relationship with death and in fact in some places it's celebrated and here we, we don't really have any literacy around it other than extreme fear of yeah the of and it's almost like I could be totally off track here but my brain's just having a big explosion um it's almost like I don't know if it's interlinked but I feel like there's some kind of relationship here between our unwillingness as a society to embrace those feelings like grief and be in avoidance of the you know some of the negative feels like yeah even just having the language around that being negative can can also create more fear around losing someone because we are so afraid of feeling not necessarily, I mean, we're probably afraid of losing the person too, but we're equally afraid of having those feelings and how big they are and how overwhelming they can be. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I kind of think of death as birth in reverse. Yeah, I was thinking. And it needs to be, it needs to be addressed in the same way. You know, when there's a birth, 
what happens? You have someone who is shell-shocked by the experience, the mother in the middle, who is just all of a sudden rug pulled out from under them, don't know what they're doing. They have this new life and everything's different with this new life involved. And the village come in. So they have support. People cook dinners. People just, you know, randomly rock up. People bring things if to help. If they're lucky. <laughs> if they're lucky. You know, yeah. so, you know, but I think as a society we're generally better at yes. looking after a new mum. Yeah. Um, it's not like we don't know what to say to them <laughs> yeah you know, other exactly. than I'm, you don't go to a new mum and go I'm sorry yeah <laughs> exactly it's it's you know those conversations and the celebration around a birth are kind of much yeah. more natural in our society whereas when someone dies that person the people who are left behind are in that same thing that they're in that same situation where the rug is being pulled out from under them they do not know where they fit in the world because that person has gone and the world is different and objects in their home are different because everything feels different when that person is now missing. And we're just not very good at doing that, that village thing of coming around someone at that time and saying, I'm going to cook for you. I'm just going to sit and watch you cry for an hour. I'm going to make you tea. I'm, you know, the, I'm just going to bring things to support you. And it doesn't even matter if I don't know what to say because just me being there is a help. Um, what what happens so often, and I hear so many awful stories of people being very isolated in their grief because people just don't know no. what to say no. and they're worried about reminding them. And the key thing I think is you're not going to upset someone by saying something. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, you're not isn't it, I think about you like, know, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you've lost, someone's lost someone to cancer and then there's like all this awkwardness around, oh, don't mention cancer. You know, or um, or don't or don't mention their wedding day, or don't mention when um for someone who has who has lost people, thankfully um or thankfully not, you know not uh my grandparents and and some friends over the years, but those memories are actually precious, and yeah. you know, and and they are worth bringing up and exploring. They are. And, um, you know, the important thing is to keep that person alive in their legacy. So um, uh, the, the work that I was doing at Sydney more recently um, at Liverpool Hospital, I was one of the artists involved in the Reflected Legacy Program, which was started up by um, an artist, uh, Robin Wilson, who is a flood Leon. It was in partnership with Liverpool Hospital and the Groundswell Project. And this was about um, using art to help families to facilitate communication with families when patients dying and to bring about change in the palliative care culture. And it was an incredibly successful program and it won, award, it won an award for sort of innovation and it was a really amazing thing. So basically what we did was um, you're the artist on the ward and you go in and see a patient and the first thing we would do in this cold, sterile, awful room is give everyone handfuls of hand-cut confetti that we used to hand-cut and we'd say this little blessing and throw it all in the air and all of a sudden this awful room is literally flooded with colour. Mm, and it feels really naughty because you're making a mess <laughs> in a hospital room, you know, yeah. so automatically it starts with giggles and it helps break the ice. And um, I had a little trolley with inks and uh, little syringes and a piece of paper that folds in half and I would ask the patient or sometimes the family if the patient wasn't able to communicate that well, questions. So they might be, you know, tell me about 
you can tell me a story about when you'd done something that was that took courage or tell me about a time of real joy kind of wild abandon you know the what are those experiences you've had and as they shared the story I put marks on the page and fold and press the paper so it's quite an honoring and a um, you know a kind of a real acknowledgement of that story and that event that happened and you open the page and you ask another question and so the image builds the image builds as they share the stories and they connect with the images. So they'll see things in the in the imagery that comes, because it is all abstract, that they can make a connection to. And then once the session is finished, I also make an audio recording of the session. I go away and go back to the studio or sometimes sit in the foyer at the hospital and I would listen back to the recording and, you know, colour it and paint it out and finish it and make it look really beautiful and then take it back to the family or the patient, if they were still alive, to have. And so this was a really beautiful process. It had lots of different ripple effects. It helped the patient to communicate with their family, to have conversations that they maybe were not able to be having. It broke the vigil of not knowing what to say, of just sitting and waiting with someone to die. It facilitated better communication with staff because they had this painting and people were very proud of these paintings. They really loved them. So they were able to communicate better with staff, particularly with the clinical psychologist who works on the ward with, with, um, with patients. So it was particularly helpful for her to, you know, have, have this as a tool to be able to communicate more with the patients and help them get through their grief of, you know, kind of what, what it meant to them that they were actually dying. Yeah, because it's like, what a great way to facilitate some conversations too, right? Because I'm just imagining in my mind some people close to me and some of them are so adamant that they never want to talk about death. They never, like, you know, when someone close to us is, is, is getting older, they do not want to talk. They do not want to talk about any future life planning at all because they just want to live you know, in the moment and deny that there is going to be an end to their relationship physically. And so in that kind of situation, then you have someone who is undeniably passing away and wants to have a conversation with their children or their parents or who, you know, their friends, yet there's no way to do it without really upsetting them and they don't necessarily want to upset them. So what a beautiful way to, yeah, to create some conversation and give that person almost permission to tell their truth. Yeah, yeah. You, you, it would. Um, there would be. There were several occasions where you would have someone who was dying who would disclose to their family something that they've never told them. Um, that that was certainly something that would happen. That they would share. Um, something about a trauma or a loss or something that they, you know, had held on to their whole lives and never talked about, you know, that's what they needed to do in order to let go. Um, So it really is, it was really a profound process. And it's one that I hope I've explained it in a way that you could understand that this wasn't art therapy. So I'm not an art therapist. I'm not going in as a qualified therapist trying to glean information out of a patient and make them feel better it's simply about coming in not as the grown-up in the room just coming in as the you know the crazy artist 
with a trolley full of colour and just saying, let's do something completely bizarre. Let's just completely do something you really did not expect to be doing today and let's just roll with it and see what comes. And I can say that I don't think anyone had a bad experience out of of the artwork, you know, kind of copied and handed around to family members. Um, There were recordings that were used at funerals. I believe there was one family who even had the artwork printed onto a big silk to kind of go over the coffin. Um, So they become really important to the family as well. You know, they become a a really important thing to them. Um, So, yeah, so it's just it's a lovely process and it's something I've been doing. um, You know, I've been working with sort of other people as well. I've been working with couples who are, you know, celebrating an anniversary or, getting married um so I've done this also you know more recently at at a wedding and those kind of things because it's really about just celebrating life and having something as kind of strange as an artist come and document it and just reflect it back to you to say you know this is a this is a this is a, a thing and it's important to record and this is your experience and here is a beautiful visual representation of your your life and your experience and your love. So beautiful. Uh, I was actually just this morning talking to um, interviewing a guy called Sean Madden and he does a similar similar but different process through songwriting. So he sits down with people who have ha- had experienced trauma, you know, people who have parkinson's or uh, have gone through cancer as a way for them to process what's happened and um yeah and it, it was such he played a couple of songs that he'd written in collaboration with these people and it, it was just so beautiful you know to have yeah that expression that's being created artistically of someone's life and you know whether it's song or a painting or also people who you know, write people's memoirs on their deathbed. Like what an what an incredible gift to leave behind for your family, but also a way to help you transition yourself and and reconcile your life, I guess. Yeah, it is. It's 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 lovely and I think it's a real key area that creativity really comes into the fore because I think it's something that you're not going to get those conversations or work through those feelings necessarily just with going through the motions of, you know, talking with a, you know, with a, with a room full of grown-ups, actually having someone come in and give you this other way of expressing those feelings is really important, you know, because grief is so complex as well and it doesn't, um, it doesn't get smaller and it doesn't go away and I think another thing that, people come up against is this expectation other people have that you will get over your grief that you will stop being sad or whatever that is and whatever there's that like looks a statute like. of limitation to yes. it. it's like okay yeah. it's been a year it's time for yeah. you to move on move on exactly um, which is not the case at all because grief doesn't work in lineal time it works in a loop and that loop can go round and round and round for a very long time. There was a, there's a really beautiful illustration that a doctor, I can't remember her name, that she drew. But she drew a circle and she said, if this is you, and she scribbled and filled the circle with lines and she said, this is all the points in your 
in you that grief hits when it comes. And then she said, and then from here, then she drew a bigger circle around this. She said, this is you grow. Your life grows after that loss. But that area that that grief has touched stays the same. It's just that after that grief experience, you continue and your experiences continue and your life broadens from that moment. But that grief remains the same. You just find ways around it or you find other things that fill your your day, you find other things that fill your, your, your mind because your life continues to grow and become more and more complex. But that grief is always there and there will be days where it crushes you and you fall to the floor in a heap 10 years after it's happened, you know, and it could be the smallest thing that will trigger, as you know, you know, there'll be something small that something happens and you'll be reminded of it. You know, I think if, if we could really build that into our culture, that this is no one is touched and no it's not pleasant but it's the price of love that's the payoff unfortunately is if we love someone then we grieve them when they've gone and I think for most people they're happy to have that grief because it's been worth it the grief is worth the love that they've had you know loving that person or that animal as well animal grief is another one that people often undermine and don't see as um as important and even as a as a person who has lost um animals you know in and in fact my mum I remember my we had a dog Razzie actually I don't know whether it was Razzie or Minnie but regardless the dog passed away and mum was so devastated she found him and you know it was just so devastating for her and she took a couple of days off work to process it but then she felt like she just had to get back on the horse because how stupid of her to be you know so upset about losing a dog and it's like that that grief was very real and so not only is it not uh necessarily that honored by society but within my mother it wasn't even honored she hadn't even really given herself permission to feel the grief because you know she just had to get on with it and it was a dog yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing. And I've, I mean, I've honestly had people say to me, I feel really bad, but I'm grieving more for my pet than I ever have a human. Well, that's fine. You know, that they're still a sentient being that you have um, had a close relationship through that have been there for you. I mean, a dog or a cat, you know, that you see them every day. They're part of your daily routine. They're part of your daily life. And that's a really difficult thing to, to lose and I think it's difficult to empathise with. People find it difficult to empathise with if they're, say, if they're not a cat person and they've never had a cat. They think, oh, you know, it's just a pet big or whatever. Deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, big deal. But it is a really big deal to, um, to a lot of people. A friend of mine is a very talented um, ceramic artist and she makes ash keepers and they're really beautiful. Her name's Ashley Fiona. Hence, they're called ash keepers, which is quite yeah, perfect. And, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of them she makes are for people's pets. So they're these beautiful spherical containers um, and the top comes off and you can put the ashes inside and you can turn the top over and put a candle in. And she decorates them in a way that's, you know, she quite often works with the, with the grieving family and creates imagery that relate to that person or that pet and stuff. And it's, you know, it's a really beautiful thing. But, yeah, it's, it's amazing how... You know, it's very popular with, with a lot of people who've lost a pet because it's a way of, of keeping them 
and keeping them close. Mm. So I'm curious as to, you know, so the work that you were doing in the UK before you came to Australia, came back to Australia, like how, how did you go from what you were doing there to this beautiful, you know, art process? Um, so I left the UK because I had a baby. So I kind of went through that big mummy bubble and, um, yeah, freaked out and decided I really needed my mum. So <laughs> we immigrated back and it was really me just coming out of that mummy bubble and seeing, you know, deciding that I couldn't go back to doing the complementary therapy work that I was doing because it had sort of wrecked my body a bit um, and really getting involved in my art and it started to come together over this. There's a long, a long project I've been working on called um, Murmuration which is when a flock of starlings form, there's like millions of them, they come together and they make these beautiful shapes. And it's something I used to spend a lot of time watching them on Salisbury Plain in the UK. And I'd been developing ideas of ways around drawing them or making, you know, I'd done woodcut prints and I'd done dry point etchings and none of them were right. And it was me kind of thinking about these processes that I came to realising that, there was a connection here between the metaphor of this beautiful formation of birds and what a truly compassionate and understanding community would look like. When these birds fly, there's no leader. So each is following the wing of the next. And what they're doing is they're working as a, as a group to look after and protect each other from, from predators as they come home to roost. Um, and in the, so for me, they really kind of worked as a really beautiful metaphor for what a compassionate community would look like, where it's not necessarily led by doctors or health providers or council. It could be led by anyone and it could be up to anyone in a community to kind of take the first step and stand up and say, okay, let's talk about death. Okay, let's put some things in place that are actually going to support people better when they're dying. Okay, here's something we're going to hand out to people to help, you know, conversation starters and things like that. Um, so all the work that's going on at the moment with the Compassionate Communities Hub and Dying to Know Day, all about trying to facilitate better conversations, with, you know, within a community. So I uh, had a solo exhibition of these drawings I did, which were these sort of large-scale murmurations of these birds that for me were this kind of perfect metaphor um, and they're really well received and one of the pieces was um, was acquired at the end of last year by Bendigo Bank which I was really thrilled about and because the message is really you know about community and and making things you know kind of really beautiful and getting people talking about this stuff more. So I'm, yeah, so I was really pleased with kind of the outcome and looking at taking it forward now into a larger scale. So, yeah, it's all, all happening. Yeah, so I, I have a question around the, like, the permission piece. So you've obviously been a creative person all of your life, an artistic kind of person. I, I find that that a lot of people have a struggle giving themselves permission to then do something with that in a professional sense. Yes. I Yeah, I know what you mean. And it is a big leap. And um, I think for me there was a couple of things. One is that I have a very supportive partner. My husband's very supportive in, in what I do. And secondly, I think 
I think it's a bit of a case of it was either this or I go back to doing something I don't want to do. So, you know, those were kind of my options. So um, I decided to just bite the bullet and go for it and see where it went, um, which I know it, it was, you know, it's, it's hard and every day it's still pretty shit scary most days, to be honest. But I'm pushing through and and just hoping that, you know, more things will come up and there'll be more opportunities for funding to to kind of do other programs and, um, you know, to kind of get this work more commonplace in, in hospitals and palliative settings, um, as well as, you know, in community settings as well. So I'm kind of hoping and working behind the scenes and trying to bring these things together. I love that. What role do you feel creativity plays in your life? Uh, creativity is really important to me. I think when I'm creating, I feel very much at home in myself. I feel the most I feel the most me when I'm in my flow and I'm making, definitely. So when I'm not, I tend to get more anxious and shitty to live with <laughs> and all those things. And as anyone that's creative knows, the muse is not always in. Mm -hmm. You know, she comes and goes mm -hmm. and you kind of get good at not freaking out when she's not around and you're kind of just twiddling your thumbs trying to work out what to do next. But for me it's everything and especially having a child, you know, I, I want to model for her how important it is to explore things and play and um, be curious about the world and really, you know, kind of explore your creative thinking process and, you know, that those things are just as important as kind of learning reading and writing and maths and stuff like that, that actually having this creative, curious, fun, playful outlook on life is, is also a really important thing to have. Absolutely. I actually was with my kinesiologist yesterday and no doubt she will be listening to this episode. <laughs> and, uh, and we were talking about, you know, that, 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 you know, I do make space for this and my creativity is this stuff, right? Like it's conversation and, and using my, my voice. And it is something that I all like space to create, whatever it is, whether it's coloring in or singing or music or, doing you know creating um my art in the world it it i always prioritize it because i am a better human when i'm a creative human even if the creativity isn't flowing you know i am i'm a better <laughs> human i am less stressed i am less anxious uh, in fact it's a tool for me to move through my anxiety really the expression piece has been you know, when I'm feeling, when I have experienced depression or anxiety before, I have tended to retreat where what I need to do is kind of reach out and and use my voice in those moments and use my art in those moments to bring me back to myself. And I was having this conversation with my kinesiologist ab about that, like, you know, she has been very work focused over the last few years because she's had these goals that she's reaching and and now she's got to this place where she's like, oh, maybe I could, you know, connect back into my creativity and maybe it needs to take a, a seat in the forefront because, I mean, what is life without it, right? Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely my passion. And I, I also teach um, adults. I do um, botanical illustration and 
nine card and all those kinds of things and what my what I always tell my students you know at the start of every course the key takeaway I want them to take away is just seeing the world differently than they did at the end of the course than they did on that day when they started mechanical drawing is a lovely way to do it because it helps encourages better observation so it's about just you know mindfully going for a walk really noticing the little details you know when my students bring in like a feather or a leaf they found I'm like so proud <laughs> I'm like yes you're seeing it you're seeing it you're seeing it and these things are important to everyone you know yes. it's it's everyone benefits from this kind of thing and whether it's just as you said just doing some like you know coloring in you know like my my goal is for people to just have a night off Netflix and you know open a scrapbook and just do some drawing or cut and paste about your dream home or do some adult coloring in or whatever it is whatever it is that you need to do um, it's really important you know it's it's important for all of us to to do it's also important for, for people in business absolutely <laughs> one, of, one of the other hats I wear is I'm creative director for a small startup called Skill Seekers and it's an online platform for women in business and it's all about education so it's all about skill sharing and upskilling and just getting better at doing stuff basically and my role in that is really encouraging creative thinking so having that time to shut down your logic which is where all your fear is and just taking ideas and, and running with them. And one of the things I literally do, which I really recommend, is taking a problem for a walk. Yeah. So <laughs> there's something that's blocking or you can't work out the answer to, you just set the intention, when I get back from this walk, I'll know what to do, and then that's it. You're not allowed to think about it while yeah. you walk. That is, you, that you is actually my it. other podcast. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I have a podcast called Carlosophies where I literally walk on the beach oh, and have a conversation yes. with yes. the universe, yes. processing what has been going on for me that week. Um, so it's kind of like a, an audio blog somewhat, but there's always a lesson and something for the, um, you know, for the listeners to ponder. But, uh, but it's also a way for me to process and it actually started at the depths or heights of my depression, depending on which way you look at it. Um, and I used to run, I, like one of my tools was moving my body and I used to run 9Ks every day and I would find just I'd be so clear on the beach, you know, it was like once those endorphins had kind of kicked in and whatever else is going on hormonally for us when, when, um, when we're in that zone and – I would come and I would just be so clear and then I would come back to write about it because I had a written blog back then called Carlosophies and it would just be gone like that. You know when you're in the shower and you have like this amazing idea and then you get out of yeah. the shower and you're like get dressed and then what you're was like, it? oh, what was that? I can't even. Yeah. It was kind of like that. And so I started running with a video camera and <laughs> it was like it was before phones had videos. This is like 2010 or something. So I'm running along with this like handheld handy cam videoing myself as I'm running sweaty mess, really, you know, not not pretty. Um, but that's where it started, right, because I wanted to, yeah, like have a way to process. And that's that's a form of kind of creative expression in itself, absolutely. giving those feelings voice, which yeah, is, absolutely. yeah. absolutely. I used to work with a really amazing team of osteopaths in the UK and um, the the head osteopath there, he once said to me that the miracle happens in the daydream. He said that's where that's that's mm. that's where you, where it all occurs. 
And when you're a physical therapist, you, your kinesiologist will know all about this. That's what happens Hi, when Tara. you're working on someone. <laughs> when you're working on a patient and you know they're just starting to shut off their thinking brain and yeah. they're not asleep but they're not with it and you feel the shift in their body and you go, there it is. Yeah, like in a theta state or I don't know what the actual yes, term exactly. is but it's like yeah. a theta state, yeah. yeah. Exactly. But in that point, as a therapist with your hands on someone, you feel it. You know exactly when they've dropped because you can feel the whole body release. It releases in a different way and you're able to manipulate what you're trying to manipulate. And it's the same with your ideas. And it's the same if you're, you know, you're a businesswoman or whatever. You know, you need to have this daydream space because this is where all those great things. And this is, what, you know, I, I set these intentions. I'm like, I don't know the answer. It'll come to me on the toilet. And it does. Like, <laughs> Mine is the shower, the shower or like folding the, the laundry, shower. you know, yeah, just like those, the mundane stuff that yeah. where so you're in the, traffic yeah. or something. <laughs> in the car, those yeah. times where you're not in the doing space and the making shit happen space is actually the time when shit does happen. Like the big, important, amazing shit happens. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is what I, you know, with the, um, with the skill, skill seekers um, membership is what I'm trying to explain to people is you need to make the time for this creative space this free space it's just as important as sitting down and writing your business plan and doing your skills and you're doing your risk assessments and you know all your modalities etc 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 you need to have this time to be open and play because if our questions are yes or no questions they leave no room for innovation but when we open up the questions comfortable because we're given lots of choices but it's that uncomfortable spot you need to hold yourself in to let your creative play come through. So true. There, um, I was actually speaking to someone on a podcast the other day about, you know, different ways if we're so kind of shut down from our creativity, different ways that we can start to explore it because it is really important, particularly for business people to be able to connect to different ideas and different ways of doing things. And, you know, that's what innovation is, right? Like thinking outside of the box. And one exercise that I can't even remember where I read, but I found it really interesting and I actually tried it and it was amazing, was just like, you know, and it's kind of a metaphor. So we have just these well-trodden paths in our brains where we feel really comfortable and we know what, what we're doing. And it's literally a path in our brain. We just go here, 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 right? It's like very linear, done. Um, and it's like when we drop the kids off to school, we jump in the car, we follow the same old road to school, we drop them at the school, see you later, back in the car, drive home. And the the challenge or the invitation was to, instead of just going that same path, find 10 different ways that you could go to the preschool or, you know, to the school. Find 10 different routes you could take, 10 different ways you could do it. Could you do it with music in the car singing? Could you try it with no sound on? Could you take a different path? Could you, you know, and it was just like it, it's an easy way that isn't challenging because I feel like a lot of people have – um have this block around creating art or being arty because there's so much judgment within them towards what they're creating, so much pressure on them for it needs, you know, for it to be good. And absolutely. Uh, and there are other ways we can open up our creativity um, that aren't necessarily lino printing or yeah. taking a paintbrush to a canvas, right? Completely. And also, it's giving yourself permission to just use it as a process. 
and understanding that that's what it is and that it's not you're not doing it to create an outcome so if you look at the way that any child draws or paints they're not aiming to do something that they will get praise for they're not aiming to create something specific um you know I'll ask my daughter about things quite often I can tell she's just making it up after she's made it she's like oh well that's probably this and that I think that was that and you know that's not what it's about what it's about is just being in that moment of just exploring the materials um whatever they are and that's what we need to give ourselves permission to do is just to have more time for that play and recognizing that actually play is as important as work because the play is work play is going to make the work easier so that play and that openness and that curiosity are the things that um, we need to give over to having time and space to focus on yeah so true so what would be your tips for someone looking to explore their creativity well um One of the tasks I gave the group in uh, membership was a desk draw challenge. Everyone's got a draw, right? Yeah. With their stationery in it. Yes. My challenge is use what's in that drawer to make something. Okay. So let's say, for example, you've got a hole puncher, you've got some, you know, you've got a ream of paper, you've got some paper clips, maybe you've got a pen. Some highlighters. (laughs) Some highlighters, whatever it is. So make something and don't just draw a picture. I mean make something. I mean scrunch up the paper, see the different ways it scrunches. Put holes in the paper and thread something through the holes. Like just play with the stuff in your desk drawer and see what you can come up with. It's a really simple task. I totally love that and (laughs) I I love that and I'm going to take that one on. So I'm actually going to schedule it in um, and then I'm going to do it and I'm going to put it on Instagram, desk drawer challenge. All right. And so... I reckon I reckon we invite everyone to do the same thing. Do a desk, go and get your desk drawer. We all have a desk drawer or even your junk drawer. If you don't have like, if you're not working at a desk, um, then get your junk drawer or your whatever, a place where you put all the shit. We, you know what I'm talking yes. about, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just build something with it. You know, even if it's your Tupperware drawer, like how can you, what can you construct on your rug out of your Tupperware drawer? Yes, like, yes. What can you make? And if you're willing to take on the challenge, I want you to hashtag desk drawer challenge and make some noise so we can find you and see what you're doing out there. And I'm going to do it myself, even though I'm like the world's worst, declare it and then never fucking do it. I'm actually <laughs> going to do this one. <laughs> awesome. I love it. So any par- parting thoughts? Oh, and where to connect with you and learn more about what you do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, okay. Um, so you can check me out. I'm um, bromwinward.com.au is my website. Um, and you can find me on the socials, which is just uh, bromwin.ward.artist. And you can also look up um, the Skill Seekers um, Collective. So look up Google Skill Seekers. Um, I'll pop. I'll give you some socials as well, Carly. Yeah, cool. For you to be in the show notes. All the things I'm doing. I said I'm sort of. I'm based in Melbourne, but a lot of the work I do is online as well. So I can find you, and I can help. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you. Any any last passing thoughts? You know, anyone who's listened to this, I hope that you're feeling like you can give yourself permission to take a small step and do something 
little, whether that's taking up our desk drawer challenge or just going for a walk today and bringing back something that you found on your walk and putting it on your desk so you have something from the outside world to think about. And, yeah, just let yourself get into that creative flow and be open to play. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. I've loved this conversation and I loved that we did open the door on, you know, having a chat about, you know, it feels like it's actually it's funny because the intention, the power of intention. Before I jumped on the call, I always set an intention and my intention for this was it for it to be like dark and light. And I feel like oh, that's exactly yeah. what it is, right? We, we talked about death and dying yes. and, you know, opening conversations about grief. And then we've, you know, really, you know, I don't know, not dived into, but I guess dived into uh, the lighter side and the joy and the playfulness. And um, what a great, I know, like spectrum. That is life, right? It is the dark and the light. And uh, we can't have one without the other. And we can't have death without life and we can't have life without death. So uh, it is about, yeah, embracing where you are at any moment and using creativity as a tool to help you be with yourself during those rough times and in the good times too. Absolutely. Love it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure oh, chatting with you. Thank you, Thank you. And that's a wrap. Go to carlynimmo.com to find ways to connect to your creativity and live life on your frequency. Until next week, make some noise. Oh.